I, I, I suspect this one was better, though. Jason, when was the last time you heard Huey Lewis and Peters <laughs> even said in public life? I was a fan at the time, so. That's strange. Like, Jessica, I think, is, you know, a wonderful person, and we have a good time, but I have not yet been able to convince her that staying up past 10 is a good idea. Hello, this is Max and Jason watching movie. I'm Max. And I'm Jason. And, and today we will be covering The Wolfman from 1941, starring Claude Rains, Warren William, Ralph Bellamy, Patrick Knowles, Bella Lugosi, Maria Ospenskaya, Evelyn Ankers, and featuring Lon Chaney Jr., directed by George Wagner. That was brilliant. Now, is there a reason why you led with Claude Rains? Because when the film, uh, um, in the opening credits, uh, the opening credits of this film has a it's not just the names it actually shows kind of snippets of each of the players in the film Claude Rains as Warren William as and uh, a long-standing tradition in Hollywood is that uh, top billing comes first and uh, somebody that doesn't get top billing but is supposed to get a lot of credit comes last an example that I'll just throw out at random is uh, Star Trek II The Wrath of Khan William Shatner gets top billing uh, Ricardo Montalban comes last. That's real. Yes, he does. If you pay, uh, and listeners, if you pay very close attention to any film, uh, maybe someone's a villain, um, and they're not top billing, but their presence in the film is very important, they will be lifted last. I think that tradition's kind of fallen away now. I'm not sure. I actually, I want to say, and and people can email and, 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 and hate me or whatever, I want to say that that happens in the Thor film with, okay. um, with Anthony Hopkins. I could be wrong, but I'm I, I do believe that that has happened even recently. Okay, okay. I just wondered, uh, Claude Rains is the first is the first bill. Claude Rains is top billing by far the biggest actor in the film at the time. Gotcha. So so The Wolfman is the story of uh, kind of a prodigal son returning home, right? Yes, yes. And that's Lon Chaney Jr. who plays Larry Talbot, is that right? That's right. And Lon Chaney Jr. is the son or was the son. He's, he's dead now. But Lon Chaney Jr. was the son of uh, Lon Chaney Sr., who was uh, probably definitely the most important horror actor of the silent era. Okay. Uh, he played uh, in The Phantom of the Opera, um, which many people have not seen, but if you've ever seen uh, just a snippet of The Phantom of the Opera uh, in black and white, you probably have seen Lon Chaney Sr. I believe he also played uh, The Hunchback of Notre Dame. He, he was a, a massive star. So um, Lon Chaney Jr. playing in this film, uh, Universal Pictures was was definitely trying to market him because if you because uh those people who have seen it if you go back and watch it you watch the credits it says Lon Chaney not okay. Lon Chaney Jr. Okay so they're kind of leaning into the fame and uh established yes. stardom of the of the of Lon the father yeah I knew there was something about that that was rattling around in my head do you remember those uh there were these weird books when we were young in at the library in the children's section of Reed Library about various movie monsters there was a they had orange spines I loved them. Yes. There was a Wolfman one. There was a Godzilla one. There was a King Kong one of these not, uh, books. That was oh, one. yeah. Well, well, see, now, now I know the times that I came to the library to check them out and they weren't there. It was your fault. <laughs> it was probably my fault because I would go to the library and check them out and read. It was like a, a, a religious text. And uh, you would read about the, the, the myth of the monsters, but you would also read a lot about these movies. Uh, but, yes. Um, but I really love those books. I wish 
wish I, I was trying to find them on Amazon recently. I, I, listeners may not find this interesting at all, but these were pivotal uh, uh, pieces of research literature for the 8, 10, 12, 13, 14 year old child. I agree. They were my um, they were my entrance texts to this whole entire universe of early films. And it probably was a few years, by the way, after reading those books that I even saw any of these. I had the only so I checked out all of these books. Uh, yes. There's one about Dracula, there was one about the Wolfman. I think there there was one about Godzilla, there was one about King Kong. You you be, being a former librarian probably know more of these books than I do. But but they they weren't all universal monsters, but you're right. The only two films I had seen when I was eleven or twelve or whenever it was we were checking these out in the children's section of the of the library was was King Kong and Godzilla. I hadn't seen any of the others. Uh but but I read about them all because I I found it all fascinating. Well, like because like one of the things I remember about reading about King Kong is that I had seen the 1976 version with Jeff Bridges several times. Yep. And it was that book, the King Kong book, that even taught me that there was an original movie. And, oh, it, really? and, and immediately I was on the lookout for it um, okay. and was very excited to see it. Because I'd seen the King Kong. My dad uh, was basically my version of your mom, your grandma. Yeah. Um, my dad made me watch all of these old horror films. I mean, he made me watch The Thing from Another World. He made me watch King Kong. Um, he made me watch uh, the Creature from the Black Lagoon. I mean, my dad was a big fan of these films. Yeah. Um, and uh, he would stay up with me late at night and watch Sammy Terry on the hope, on the on the off chance that we might get like a legitimate classic and not some Vincent Price crap. But today we're discussing The Wolfman, sadly for the second time because I lost the original recording and Jason has deigned to, to tackle this this film again. So do you have any production notes, Jason? Any, anything interesting that you want to cover before we jump into the, the film proper about The Wolfman? Well, uh, you know, it's very interesting. One of the things that fascinates me about this film, and we'll probably come back to it while we're talking, is that uh, this film is directed by George Wagner. I don't know if Wagner or Wagner, but it's Wagner with two G's. And if one, if you look at his career as a director, it, it's not very extensive. He, he's not he's not necessarily a, a classic director uh, by any stretch of the imagination. Um, and this was uh, The Wolfman in 1941 was part of uh, a series of films made at Universal Studios. This is the time of the studio system in which um, um, studios had their own kind of stock of actors and, and they would make films almost like on an assembly line. And uh, Universal, very interestingly, for 10 years uh, before The Wolfman, had uh, begun making a series of monster films based on, uh, some of them based on classic novels, uh, classic uh, works of literature. And The Wolfman comes fair, kind of in the middle of that period. What it comes before? What it come before? Frankenstein, The Bride of Frankenstein. Dracula was the first in 1931. Dracula with Bela Lugosi. And then the Frankenstein films. Uh, there was The Mummy with Boris Karloff, which is actually a very good film that I would recommend to anybody. But interestingly today, the Universal Pictures monster franchise is kind of the first cinematic universe. Because all of these films, even though it's a very loose connection, these films are very much connected to each other in a certain way. There will be sequels. There will be even films where the creatures meet each other. Um, it's not done as smartly as what we're used to today in the Marvel Cinematic Universe, where everything is stitched together very, very accurately and uh, actors are brought back. In this series, you will have um, actors replaced, you'll have characters replaced, but it really was the first attempt to try to create a series of films that were connected to one another so that people who had seen a previous film could jump into a new film and kind of expect the same thing. Would you say this is kind of like them taking a bigger approach to like the serial? 
I think so. I think so. I mean, um, this was the period of the serial. I, I uh, and in fact, it's funny you mentioned that. I did read today that George Wagner directed a lot of westerns in the in the 30s and late 20s, and a lot of those would have been very disposable kind of film. You know, kind of serial like. Yes, I, I I agree with that. I I think that um, what Universal was really trying to do was trying to just kind of create something that was like the serials. But these films have had a little bit more staying power than the serials would have. I mean, nobody really watches westerns from the early 1930s anymore. Um, but people do watch these films. These films, the, the Universal Monster film, do still inspire people. They are all worth watching and they're worth having discussions about. They, not all of them have aged as well as, as others, but they are worth watching and they are worth discussing. Okay, no, I, it's interesting. I'm happy that you said something positive about The Mummy. I've never I've never actually tackled The Mummy, so I'll do that in the future. That's that's kind of interesting. That, that now what it, I think the reason why it is sort of hodgepodge and disorganized is because I don't think that there was a, a necessarily a program or idea that let's have a giant monster unless you unless you know that there was no there wasn't and I I mean my theory behind that would be the reason that there was no kind of program is we have to go back at that time if you wanted to see a movie because remember this is actually before television yep. um, if you wanted to see a movie you would go to the theater you would see the film and then you would go home and then two or three years later if they made a sequel you might not even remember what happened in the film you saw two or three years ago yeah. a lot of the kind of exacting standards that we kind of expect today when we see films that are sequels to other films viewers back then might not have been looking well in, in fact i mean like when you when you when you put it that way we certainly as modern viewers have an advantage because that that viewers in 1941 or earlier didn't have like you just said it and it, it hit me we get the movie when it re is released we go to the theater we watch it oh yeah it's great but then six months later we get the dvd so it's in our head right, right? so we are constant or we get it on some streaming service or if it's on hbo or some premium channel so we're so the films that we like are never far from our mind right whereas in 41 39 whenever we're getting like a lot of films in between but we're not getting that reinforcement so right. i mean somebody said hey we should combine wouldn't it be great i'm guessing eventually somebody said wouldn't it be great if frankenstein fought dracula right <laughs> Right, right. And and that's a great idea. But like by the time somebody has that idea, the actors who were in those movies are doing other things. Not Bella Lugosi, obviously, but 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 Boris Karloff got kind of tired of the Frankenstein role. I know that. Um, yes. And uh, and wanted to do other things. And so by the time people have that act idea, it's 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 too late to have those same actors because you're right. The actors do change a lot in the course of like they're like seven Wolfman movies. There's ah, but Lon Chaney never never abandoned the role. Did he, he not? Was very, and he was very proud of that I guess in in, uh, in interviews late in life he said you know that was my baby he's and uh, so wonderful. he stuck with it he's wonderful in the movies but yeah but but when he meets Frankenstein it's not Boris Harloff correct correct when he meets Abbott and Costello it's not no no it is it is Abbott and Costello <laughs> <laughs> um, so no that's interesting then that's the only production note you can think of that, that you want to comment on you know that's the most important one because actually I mean I well I guess I should probably say this that I think that the Wolfman being released in 1941 uh, was coming at a period where the Universal monster films were kind of beginning to wane a little bit. Uh, there, there hadn't been a Dracula film for several years. You're quite right. Boris Karloff had abandoned the, the Frankenstein films. And The Wolfman was kind of the beginning, I think, of the, I mean, I mean, this is kind of revisionism, but kind of the second wave. Okay. Because, because Universal would continue to make uh, monster films for another decade and a half. Yeah. Um, but The Wolfman was kind of a, a, a film that really was kind of made at a time when 
there might have been a perception where the ser- these types of films were beginning to wane. Yeah. And um, and so, I mean, I, I would throw that out there as something that is something that I perceive. Um, was this, was yeah. this a well-received movie? I can't remember um, from our first foray into this discussion. I, 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 st- I think it was a well-received movie. Um, certainly in the kind of kind of long perception, uh, yes. yes. I, I do think that it was very successful at the time. I, I think that it, it kind of reestablished the Universal series. Certainly in the 40s and well into the 50s, Universal continued to make monster films. That stopped at a certain point. But I would say that The Wolfman was provided the impetus for the series to continue for at least another decade. Well, I, I think you're right. Certainly in the modern era, I'm just reading now, that Rotten uh, that the Rotten Tomatoes, which is kind of a review aggregator, um, puts The Wolfman at 90%. But it does seem like it did put the horror movies back, the Universal horror movies back on the map. Because after this, after 41, we get a lot of movies uh, about these characters, the interactions of them. We get the Abbott and Costello interactions. Abbott and Costello, folks, for, who, for people who don't know, are very famous 30s and 40s comedians who had like a string of hit movies in, in this era that were that met all of the universal monsters I think at some point but anyway they're part of the the universal mar- monster universe but I do and 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 part of the continuity they are part of the continuity I mean they are yeah. they are canonical entries into these into these films um I'll get back to that later because I I know that Tom Cruise eventually tries to re- is trying to revitalize the universal monsters for his own for a new franchise right, right. um but anyway uh to the wolfman proper uh 1941 is this based on a book that you know of or anything no i don't i i i don't think so i do know that um no this is something that is not that is not widely known but um this is the second attempt mm-hmm. by universal pictures uh to make a werewolf film um uh, which i i had not known for years but in 1935 universal had made a film um that um was called werewolf of london okay that was actually not very successful and is indeed forgotten i think today i mean i i don't know if people like it today i had never even heard of it until uh, i had done the research for this this film i've never so, seen the movie but i i do remember it being in that it's mentioned in that book that the wolfman book that you and i read many years ago the the yeah okay review of the the movies and the universal monster i know that that was that that original film the werewolf of london was considered uh groundbreaking in its effects which this film will build upon the transformation yes. the, the transformation from man to wolf effect that we get in this film so returning to the story we have uh, a very classic horror film thick with foreboding thick with almost uh, an idea of fate moving the hand of fate moving through the characters uh, did you get uh, that? Um, not only that but a great deal of focus on tragedy yes um, there's definitely a focus that Larry Talbot played by Lon Chaney Jr. is a very tragic character um, he's a character that we are supposed to like and I think that we do we do and if one pays attention very closely to the story which uh, the story I think grabs the viewer and brings them um, um, very quickly one does find that Larry's Larry's story does seem inevitable at a certain point. yeah this is a I, I like the, I like that that framing unlike a lot of horror films um, this is a tragedy yes this film is a tragedy Dracula is in a tragedy correct Frankenstein Great. is close to a tragedy right but but that is earned yes uh, Dr. Frankenstein uh, even though we 
we even though we like Dr. Frankenstein, we kind of understand that he kind of overdid it yep. uh, in terms of his quest to to resurrect dead tissue and and create life. We we end up identifying with him, and we end up hoping that he kind of makes it. Yeah, Larry Talbot does not deserve what happens to him. None of it. None, absolutely. And so I think that that's one of the things that probably would have been powerful to 1941 audiences. It's certainly powerful to audiences watching today, even though they, even though the acting of the period is very of 1941. You know, it's, it's, it, is. It's, it doesn't hurt the film too much I, at all, at all. I'll say that it doesn't hurt it at all. But that is kind of the, the heart and soul of the werewolf story, though, isn't it? It's somebody who doesn't have any control over what happened. Um, right. You know, they are, it's a curse. I mean, that's why they call it a curse, I suppose. <laughs> you know? Yeah, yeah. Um, so Larry Talbot is a prodigal son. He comes home from America. He's left Britain. as He's young. lived in America for some time, apparently because he was not the oldest. Yep. He, he was not going to um, succeed to the title. His father is uh, nobility. Yep. Uh, uh, I, I, I guess an English lord. They don't say that, but he seems to be. And his older brother was killed in a hunting accident. And now he has to come home to become the heir. Yeah. And this isn't a super bitter relationship between the father. Uh, young Larry Talbot, our hero, played by Lon Chaney Jr., left, I get the sense, just because he didn't have a place, like you said, and he even, he does say, though, that he does follow the family, the family happenings. He says to his father, he's like, I was very proud when I saw that you uh, had had achieved some scientific accolade. I don't remember what the accolade was. Yeah, because because his father is, um, you know, a, a, as a, a member of the British aristocracy, he has nothing but time on his hands. But he is very, he, he is very interested in scientific, kind of the latest science. He yeah. sounds like a polymath made these advancements in uh, yes. uh, in XXYYY, whatever. You know, um, it's interesting because Larry isn't bitter. I, one of the things I really like about Larry Talbot is he's not a sad, he's not bitter, he's not bitter at his dad, but there is a, there's a kind of a uh, an unequalness in, of guilt. Sorry, the elder Talbot, uh, played by Claude Rains, brilliantly. He does feel bad about how Larry felt he had to leave. Yes. And he's, because he, and, he, and he seems a little sad about that. Like, it, it, it has just dawned on him that, you know, the focus that we have on the, the first son is wrong. He, he's come to that, he, he, he's come to that conclusion very late, but it's a sincere conclusion, I think. Yes, because because he, I think he sticks with it through the rest of them. Oh. Um, he, because he's, he specifically says to Larry, um, let's make a promise that we will not observe that kind of reserve from here on out. Absolutely, because he says, he said, this is an old family tradition where the younger sons leave because yeah. they feel like they don't have a place in this in this family. And it's 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 really poignant. Um, I missed it the first time I saw it, but I was really moved by it watching, watching I only got to watch the first half of it today, but uh, again today. But I was I was kind of moved by uh, the elder Tab Talbot's uh, how bad he felt about that that situation. No, I, I I agree. I think that Earth Two, Max and Jason, who had originally watched this film, I think they both missed that. Yeah, and it, it's a touching moment. And yeah. uh, but it one of the things that every time Master Talbot, the elder Talbot, brings this up, Larry is like, "Hey, it's okay. I'm I'm here now. It's all right." He says that exactly. Yes. And uh, and the elder Talbot was too bad that it took a hunting accident to bring you home. And that's but but uh, as they're having this conversation, as they're reuniting, the elder Talbot, I can't remember his first name, but Talbot Senior, I'll call him that from now on. He uh, he's like, well, you know, you've been away for a long time, and you've certainly mastered a lot of skills, and you're going to be a great you're going to be a great asset to the estate. And almost immediately, we find that that uh, Larry has a lot of engineering skills because a, a brand new telescope comes to the estate, owing to that massive amount of time a British lord has, you know, right. to fuck off and discover things, right? <laughs> right. Uh, and uh, Larry. Larry 
helps him set it up because he's been he's been working with telescopes almost since he left. He's not he's not he's not blessed with the scientific curiosity of his father, but he is curious about engineering and he's learned how to to work optics and and I mean, he's a very practical man, Larry, versus yes. his father who's very cerebral. His, cere- yes. his father is 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 a polymath. I mean, he is brilliant. It sounds like to me, you know. Yes. Uh, well, I mean, uh, uh, the scene you're about to describe this might be a good time to point out that the pr- the production design in this film is really really fantastic. There's actually, you know, usually when Max and I talk about these films, we talk about our our initial reactions, and I guess we didn't do that this time, so I'll kind of do that now. Uh, after reading these uh, books with the orange spines that Max talked about earlier, uh, I eventually got around to all of these films, and I you know, I saw all the Universal films, and I liked them all to one degree or another. But when I first saw this film, I believe it was in high school, I really loved it. Like, this film really kind of got under my skin. I really liked everything that it did. And one of the things that's very interesting now in watching it is to is to kind of piece together why. Okay. And the production design is just really well done. Um, the shot selection in terms of where to set up the camera. Uh, the very next scene from what you're talking about, because the telescope comes and, and Larry puts it together, he assembles it. But the first time that we see uh, Sir Talbot's study is we see uh, Sir Talbot in the kind of the foreground by his desk. And then there's kind of this terrace in his office uh, with um, um, c- kind of a, a windowed terrace where the uh, telescope is being set up by Larry. And in seeing that, uh, in watching it today, I really realized that, you know, they didn't have to do that. They didn't have to build that set. They could have just had telescope, dad, and son and have it all done in close up. And they didn't. Yeah. They give us this expansive study mm-hmm. of, of Sir Talbot and, and, and Larry kind of in the background tinkering on um, um, the telescope. And this will be continued throughout the film. Yep. And and I'm actually, I'm kind of a believer in this, in what I'm about to say, that um, really intelligent movie viewers, even if you don't notice something like that, it kind of, it enhances your digestion of a scene in such a way that even if you don't notice why a scene is good, yeah. it's, it affects you better than it would have if all of that had done been done in close-up with no production design whatsoever. Um, and again, this will continue throughout the film, but this this scene in terms of the establishing shot, in terms of the dialogue, in terms of how all of it's done, in terms of the character development, this is all very well done. Well, I think that good production design uh, sort of pays for itself in that it imparts a sense of reality to what we're seeing. If you're all in close-up and if you're trying to hide the fact that you haven't designed a, a good set, or if you just, you know, phone in the set, right. audiences notice that shit, you know what I mean? Yes, and, yes. and this film does take the time. I mean, we're almost always on a studio set in this film, but it all often doesn't feel that way. And when when you do notice it's a set, you forgive it because the production values are really quite good. Even even yes. even when it's in the forest later on, even when you know you're in a set, right? Um, you're you're on the Universal lot. You're on the Universal lot, exactly. But everybody's taking the time to really to really craft good sets, and there's that 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 quality of immersion. I think it probably makes the acting better because the actors are able to interact with a very a very real three-dimensional space, right? Oh, and, and not only that, you know, I mean, George Wagner, who I'd never heard of, and if you, again, as I said earlier, if you if you read his, uh, um, you know, the career that he had and lift the movies that he made, I mean, half of them are in television. This guy is not somebody that had a prestigious career in Hollywood, but actually, the composition of the shots in this movie uh, are actually rather striking. There's a lot of uh, foreground and background stuff where you have characters uh, far in the back 
background yeah. that that are in focus yeah. um and um a lot of the scenes in the movie are very expansive I, and this movie's not given enough credit for that no certainly you, you don't when you hear about this movie when people discuss it when you read reviews of it they don't often talk of the production design but it's worth ex except for the effects of the transformation but i think that that's short short short-sighted um uh and on this watching though i i was thinking about about the acting a little bit in this in these early establishing scenes and wondering whether it was good um i looked the past a little bit the fact that lon cheney jr doesn't have a british accent um, I, I, I get that but of course he's been living in california i think he said he's been living in california but um so i just he's been gone for 12 years you know we don't know what what his travel regime looked like before that did he travel a lot extensively as a second or a second son anyway you know um but claude rains kind of carries us through a lot claude rains is brilliant in this movie by the way I, yes uh, as talbot senior i i was really taken by his performance this time and how very fatherly he seemed without seeming he's never saccharine in this movie but i get a oh. sense i get a sense that uh, a real sense of, of of connection between he and larry so anyway he's 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 very happy to have larry home and he's very complimentary or reinforces that happiness a lot with compliments and uh he has things to do so he leaves larry to the telescope correct yes and larry is testing out the optics to make sure that his dad wasn't just blowing smoke about how good he had he had he had set the telescope up and as he's perusing through town with the telescope he happens upon a shop window well not a shop window but a, a window above a shop and that's where right. he just he discovers miss conleaf adjusting her earrings right yes and he's immediately taken with her as he's looking at her through this telescope and i hope he didn't look at her too long um i get the sense that larry's not that kind of guy so he immediately just he immediately sets off for town after seeing this wonderful intriguing woman through the telescope right yeah and you know i i i think i know where you're going with this this time watching it because actually I, I i watched it today in full and one of the things that i kind of wonder you know is kind of modern people uh you know born in the 1970s i think it's easy for us to kind of see larry's behavior watching gwen through the telescope as being kind of kind of creepy but and it, it is yeah. but it's a very young thing to do yeah. and i kind of in watching gwen and larry today for the first time it actually occurred to me that i think they're supposed to be either teenagers or about 20. i think and, they're younger but also for me watching it today i got the sense that larry was the kind of guy who was oh shit he watched her for a minute and then thought okay maybe i shouldn't be doing this. i shouldn't be doing this uh, if, if this movie was made today yeah. and you cast somebody who was 18 or 19 as both larry and gwen yeah. i think that we would not be as creeped out by the um by the telescope scene because i think as older as um i guess i guess we're younger people no. but when we're looking at this film made for really our grandparents generation uh larry's wearing a, a fedora hat carries a cane lon cheney jr wasn't 20 but i almost think that we tend to look at larry and gwen as older than they actually are intended to be do you see what i'm saying because i think so in watching it this time in watching it this time larry and gwen are totally behaving like young people who are both not married yep. and and who who yeah they you know they have this idea of the commitment that they're supposed to be in yep but at the same time gwen's not married yet 
yet. No. You know, I mean, um, and Larry's single and they're they're very open. They're both very open to the flirtation that we're about to discuss. Yes, yes. And I think that for, for young people, that's very normal. I think, you know, when you say, when you put it that way, I, I think that that is actually right. Because they're both, especially, uh, uh, what, I can't remember her first name, Conleaf. Um, Gwen. Gwen. Gwen, yeah. Gwen. Gwen. I mean, she's still consulting. She's still worried about what her parents might think. In her father's favor, I mean, his father puts a lot of trust in her already, right? But I think you're right. Lon Chaney and Gwen actually look like, you know, 30 or 35-year-olds in this film. Right, I, right. I think you're actually absolutely right that they're supposed to be, because they play as younger, right? They do. They Lon do. Chaney acts like a, a person who's still in high school sometimes, you know? Yes. When what I think we're supposed to get is that he's the age of somebody who maybe just graduated from college. Yeah. Um, the same is true of Gwen. And uh, God, her friend, uh, Jenny, who we'll meet later on, I think that's the, the person's name, looks like yeah. a like a fucking spinster. <laughs> You know, like, yeah. like whoever whoever cast this movie wasn't wasn't thinking beyond well, Lon Chaney, the, the Lon Chaney marquee value. I don't think. I, think I don't know. I mean, I mean, actually, um, Evelyn Anchors as Gwen is quite the looker. Oh yeah, yeah. So, so uh, and actually, I, I I'll say it right now. I I adore her in this movie. She's good. And so and but what you just said about uh, it's Faye Helm as Jenny Williams. How you describe her is accurate. When am I gonna get married? And Bella Lugosi should have said, "We'll get to this." Again again in a minute. <laughs> you should have said it's not happening, lady. <laughs> You're so, 90. Right, right. But see, I think that for that period of Hollywood, that's the kind of casting they want. They didn't want us, they, they didn't want us to know that. Yeah, they, wanted, they wanted us to focus on Larry and Gwen. Yeah, and I mean, it's no fault of any of the actors who were picked for this this role, but but I think you're right. I think they would have liked to have, I think they were supposed to be played younger. I, I think I think you're probably right that 1941 audiences would have understood that they're supposed to be young. Um, yeah, yeah, because, because actually, I think that Larry and Gwen, their flirtation, like if we actually think about, okay, this is supposed to be our grandparents. Yeah. But their flirtation is actually pretty normal. I think so. I think I, for, for 1941, I think that everything that happens is pretty normal. So to fill audiences in on Jason and I's conversation, Larry Talbot sees Gwen Conleaf in this telescope and he says, I got to meet this chick. He probably doesn't say that because chick wasn't very popular. It probably wasn't a good right. for women at the time. He says, I've got to meet this, this dashing young lady. And he goes to the, the shop that she runs, which is some kind of jewelry jewelry store, miscellaneous. It's an, it, uh, it's an antique store. An okay, antique okay. Store. Well, that's right, antique store. And he needs to kind of contrive a way to meet her because he can't say, "Hey, I was just watching you through my telescope." <laughs> um, because I'm a creep. Because he's not a creep. He doesn't want to be a creep, but he wants to meet Gwen Conley. And he comes in and he says, "I need to buy some earrings because he's watched her fiddle with earrings." And she shows him some earrings, and and he's like, "Well, these none, none of these will do. I need I need these with a little." bangles on oh, well, well but stop for a second okay. because actually one of the really wonderful things about this scene is that she shows him the earrings and if you watch him he never looks at the earrings he never looks at the earrings his <laughs> eyes never leave her and he says no those won't do he, he is totally starstruck by her yeah. and he thinks uh, he yeah. has a way and he thinks he has a way to kind of intrigue her he's trying to be intriguing he's yes. not trying to be creepy and uh, and she's like well we don't have any of those clearly because I just showed you these and he's, he's like no they're like the ones on your dresser and and he's he's trying to intrigue her to like well how does he know this right she's shockingly not offended by that she's shockingly not offended. Or, or, or afraid 
he's like, and he, and he kind of goes on this little bit about like, well, you know, I have this, I have this, I'm psychic, I have this, uh, I'm psychic, I have this, uh, when I see a beautiful woman, I know what kind of earring she had. I can't remember what he exa- it says exactly. Yeah, it, that's main, that's basically what he says. And she, she goes with it. Yeah. She, she does go with it. She thinks he's kind of funny and, and he's not pushy here. So he, I think you can watch it and think this is, this is not something to be worried about on Talbot's part. And, and when she starts to become unnerved by this and she's like, well, maybe I should get my father so you can talk to him. He, he backs like, off. He's like, <laughs> yeah. no, how about I just buy a cane or something? It's, you know, it's trying to prolong the interaction, but he doesn't want to creep her out because he's not, a, he's not a bad guy. And, and so she shows him some canes and they have a, they have some cute little interactions, interactions. She says, oh, here's one with the dog on it. It suits you perfectly or something like that. And he was like, no, that won't do because he's trying to prolong the conversation. And then he discovers the giant, the obnoxious, the most obnoxious cane in the, in the pile. And it is a cane. Well, it's a cane with another dog with a, with a star on it. What's that about? And she's like, well, it's not a dog. It's a wolf. And it's a pentagram. And he's, he's intrigued with it because it could be a putter, but it is the most obnoxious cane, I think in the, in which the, is a very American line, by the way. Oh, it'd make a good putter. Yeah. Yeah. And, uh, and this is the, this is, this is the first instance of that foreshadowing and fate yeah. that we're going to get throughout the film. And he's intrigued by the cane. She thinks it's kind of a neat cane. And he says, well, how much is this? And she says, three pounds. And he's like, $15. Like she knows what that, she fucking cares what it is in dollars. He says, well, what's it, what does it mean? And uh, she kind of describes to him the cane. She says, uh, well, the pentagram is the sign of the werewolf. Is that what she says? I can't remember. She says that. Yeah. And then she, and then she recites the poem, uh, the which, poem, which I've written down. Um, go for we, it. We get bit, oh, we get beat over the head with this poem, by the way, for the next, for the next five minutes, I think. Well, uh, we do, but it should be pointed out that this poem has been so overdone in werewolf mythology from 1941 to now that it's easy to believe that this was composed in the eight, nine, uh, 19th century. It was composed for this film. It was, it was. Even a man who is pure in heart and says his prayers by night may become a wolf when the wolf's vein bloomed and the autumn moon is bright. Oh, excellent. Well, thank you, thank you, thank you. Um, I was going to try and go Shatner on it, but then I lost that that train of thought because there's been a lot of tequila in my life tonight. <laughs> but that that's the poem that she she recites to us. And everybody in this region knows this poem. He gets it He gets it like two or three times. Uh, once from, from Gwen, once from Ginny, and once from dad. his dad. And not in exactly that order. I think I, I, I think it's Gwen, dad, Ginny. So he buys the cane and, and Ginny, I'm sorry, Gwen leads him out of the shop because, you know, you gotta get out of here. And that's when the gypsies, the gypsy caravan comes in and he's like, oh, gypsies. And she's like, oh, the fortune tellers, they come every autumn. And he's like, I haven't had my fortune told in a long time. You should come with yep. me tonight. And they're very flirtatious here. And she's like, no, I can't. And he's like, I'll be back at eight. And she's like, no, I won't have this. And- oh, she, all she says is no. Yeah. She, she does not elaborate. She's, yeah. she's, she's very clear, but the way Evelyn Anchors plays it, she's also still having fun. And I think Larry yes. knows that now. Yeah. Well, and when she shuts the door, she's still kind of looking at him through the glass and he's like, I'll be back at eight. And she like does something, a little acting on the other side of the glass and he leaves and he realizes I mean, they've had a, they've, they've had a clear connection, you know, and yeah. which we'll find out later on. And that's when he goes to talk to his dad and uh, he's like, his dad, he and his dad talk about his big cane and he brings up, well, when when Connolly told me about this cane and the pentagram and uh, do you believe in any of that? And, and his dad says, well, that's a legend, but all legends have some basis in fact, right? And yeah, I mean, his father's thought about this, but he's not, is not prone to superstition at all. No, no. And he has a very interesting idea about the lycanthropy myth. And he's like, it, he says, you know, it probably has something to do with duality in all men, right? 
right? Yeah. Uh, but his dad is very happy that he's taken with Gwen and he's taken to the town. His son, Larry. Yeah. Um, and he's like, and, oh. and, and the way Claude Rains, uh, the scene that you're referring to, Claude, the way Claude Rains plays it, he's immediately aware that his son is taken with Gwen and he kind of approves of it. He does, he does. And and he's, he's yeah. encouraging without being obnoxious about it. Well, you should, oh, yeah. you should meet everyone in that. Right, right. Like, like you know, you know, I'm 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 glad that you found a girl that's yeah. you know taking your eye. That's great. Keep going, yeah. but taking everybody else as well. You know, yeah, that kind of. And thing. and his dad says this several times in the in the first act. You know, he says they're simple people. They have weird beliefs. They have strange beliefs, but they're all good people in this town. Is what is yes. what his dad eventually is where his dad lands on on the on the on the community. One of the things I thought when I was watching this, uh, the, the, this sense of foreshadowing and foreboding and uh, is really tied to this idea of the tragedy and fate in many ways and this kind of comes through in the gypsy portions that not maybe not as clearly as it would in a modern writer's hands but there's the sense of I think I think you said it earlier inevitability yes and that's not super common I don't think in a lot of horror the idea of inevitability yeah. like uh you are tied to these tracks and fate is bearing down on you and there's nothing I, there's nothing you can do about it I you know that's a really good point that we should probably continue to talk about as we go along because actually um and maybe we could pinpoint the moment probably about to happen in our discussion but there comes a point where larry actually has no choices left absolutely and only he knows that and we know that and that's it yeah well, uh, well i guess maliva knows yeah that. well yes and, th- and that's 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 where the real poignancy of the tragedy of the wolfman comes together um in our knowledge and larry's knowledge larry regales his father with his adventures and then of course he goes back to the conleaf antique store and this is how we know that actually Larry wasn't being too pushy or anything like that uh, because Gwen comes out and she's looking around for Larry. And? And? He's wearing the earrings. He's wearing the earrings he likes. That's right. And he he introduces himself because he, he shows up and she's like, well, I can't go with you. And, uh, and we, we find out later on that that's a ruse. And uh, he's like, well, I don't want to go alone. I'm scared of the dark. And they're, they're, they're kind of having this nice flirtatious moment. And uh, and she's like, well, okay. Um, and then she calls her friend Jenny, who's also supposed to be 20, who but who is 80. <laughs> um <laughs> The casting director kind of flubbed it a bit here. Ah, uh, um, you know, I, I'm not, look, I, I hear what you're saying. I think I would go back to what I said before, because actually, if I recall, she even, like, her, her whatever she's wearing is kind of buttoned up. Yeah. Like, she's clearly very, they want her to look different than from Evelyn Ank. Yeah, yeah. And so, if that's what they were trying to do, then actually, even though what you're saying is right. Yeah, yeah, yeah. But, but if they were trying to fo- to keep our focus on Evelyn Ankers as Gwen Conliffe, they kind of nailed it. They certainly did by casting an 80-year-old opposite Evelyn <laughs> Anchors. No, you know, it's it's funny. I mention it now, but it's only because it's like the third time I, the third or fourth time I've seen the film, right? I didn't actually notice how much older Jenny is. I don't think, yeah. the first time I, I didn't realize that there was such a, she seems a lot older than, than Gwen. But anyway, she calls Gwen, she, Gwen calls her friend Jenny, and it's kind of a moment where uh, Larry realizes that, that Gwen has actually conscripted a friend to be a chef her own, yeah. right? Because she, 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 just, she just met Jerry. She just met Larry, right? Yeah. And and 
while she thinks he's nice, it's good to have backup in these in these in these fraught moments of the first date. And when so when when Jenny steps out, and I love this, I do. Um, um, Larry, the way Lon Chaney Jr. plays it, he looks so crestfallen. Yes. <laughs> and Evelyn Anchors as Gwen Conliffe is almost triumphant, <laughs> like she's almost she enjoying, is. right? She is. She is. And then Jenny and and Gwen rescue uh, Larry from his embarrassment. They each take him by the arm and kind of a, it's kind of a warm little moment it is a warm little moment and, and and he kind of chuckles oh well this is going to be a nice night even though it's not going to just be me and Gwen and they do they you know it's hard to know how much time we're supposed to imagine has happened but they're clearly all having a good night together you know by the time they get to the gypsy camp um and Jenny wants to go first when they get to the gypsy camp to get the fortune told right yes and uh this is fine with Larry it's fine with Gwen and uh Jenny goes in to get her uh fortune told with the actor Bela Bella Lugosi who plays Bela sorry I, I, I'm um, and that's a moment for uh, Larry to say well we didn't stay here to listen to Jenny's fortune so so, right. so this is a fine moment for Gwen and, and Larry to walk off Jenny goes and gets her fortune told by Bela played by quite an icon Jason take it away Bella Lugosi Bella Lugosi was a immigrant I believe from Hungary who didn't speak very good English who came to America and made a career for himself in Hollywood, uh, most famously as Dracula, kind of kind of spearheading the Universal franchise. Dracula was the first film uh, in the series, very early talky. Um, um, Lugosi struggled a lot as an actor after Dracula in terms of finding roles. Yep. This is his best role. I think that's right. I actually think he is awesome in this movie. I didn't see that until this viewing, I don't think. But I he is so much better in this than he is in Dracula. I, yes. I, I may offend Lord Movies, I I may offend listeners. I don't like his Dracula at all. Uh, his Dracula is iconic, but there's a difference. There's a difference between iconic and good sometimes. Yes, and he's not the best Dracula. No, um, certain certainly. Look, he's probably the most imitated Dracula, and he deserves credit for that. He does. But I, and maybe we should do that film at some point. But um, I've I've actually always had a, a problem with his performance in the film. That it's dated. It I don't want to say it's bad, but it's very dated. Uh, his performance here is not. Data. He's very, very good. It's, it's one of the best performances in the film, in a film that has no bad one. No, it's true. And it echoes the, the theme of tragedy. Um, he, we've, we've had this happen in the last three films, I think. Uh, well, not the last three, but but we meet Bela Lugosi kind of at the tail end of his story, at the tail end of his events. Yes. And we're kind of getting some foreshadowing of what Larry's in for, right? Yes. And, and uh, like you said, I have not always been a huge fan of Bela Lugosi acting and yes. in this is this is his most human I yes. think, and most modern kind of performance no I think that you're right this is Bela Lugosi's best performance yeah. um, he's the he's and, the, the gypsy fortune teller and he earlier on we learned that the reason why the pentagram is important and why it's attached to the symbol of the wolf on Lon Chaney Jr.'s new cane Larry's new cane is that that mark the pentagram is for some reason transferred to the new werewolf to any werewolf they have it on them somewhere and they right. also see the mark on any Anybody that they're about to kill. Yes. And so we go into this fortune telling event for for armed, I guess, or warned about this. And as 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 he's as as uh, Bela is giving the fortune, he sees the pentagram on Jenny's hand. Well, first first he cuts the cards. I, I um you know uh, and she asks you know how long will it be till I get married? And we see that Bella he saw something that was not good, and it and he and he doesn't like that. He, but even news... before that, so I I don't mean to interrupt, but even before that 
she asked that question and she puts the bouquet of wolfsbane that they had discovered up between them and he very brusquely very rudely knocks it away you know i don't think i noticed that yes well done yeah on the way to uh on the way to the fortune tellers with uh larry and jenny and uh gwen he picks the wolfsbane jenny picks the wolfsbane we get hit over the head with the poem again and larry must be thinking at this point god you people are all obsessed with women. <laughs> yeah. but, but I've heard this from my dad. I've heard this from Gwen. And now you fucking 80 year old lady with the fucking poem. And, uh, but she keeps that, <laughs> keeps that uh, bouquet of Wolfsbane. But when she asks, uh, when she asks Bela, when will I be married? She does this with the bouquet and he knocks it away. And it's a very, it's almost a frightened gesture by Bela Lugosi. It's really, it's really effective, I think. But go ahead. Sorry. Yeah, no, no, no. I mean, actually, I, I, I think maybe I didn't register that it was the Wolfsbane, but well, I mean, he's very stressed out by her, and then he says, your hands, please, and uh, like he's trying to reset, like, okay, you know, this isn't going well, why don't I just wipe that all away, and, and I'll, I'll I'll read your poem, and um, so there's kind of a, um, I think kind of a sloppy special effect, it's okay for the time, yeah. where, the, where the pentagram is kind of superimposed over her palm, yeah. and I know that uh, Earth 2, Max and Jason, who recorded this originally, I think I probably really can't down pretty pretty hard on that effect because it, it doesn't look great but this time i actually saw the effect different okay i saw it as the film was telegraphing to us what they Be- abela saw yeah because actually um you know a modern film might just show the palm and then try to convey with the acting that something was seen that was yeah. not good yeah and i think that i would probably prefer that but i actually that effect annoyed me last time and it did okay. not this time I, I i actually kind of thought okay you know they're just trying to inform the audience because you know this is a vi- um might be a good time to talk about this the pacing of this film is awesome it is it is i, I mean i mean i mean the story moves at a breakneck pace dialogue is never wasted in this movie i mean every every step in this movie every scene every line is intended to give us the information that we need and move us along well and, and it, but it never feels rushed i didn't feel that way correct i agree with with that as well. It, it's sort of audience members might get tired of hearing this, but it's a very Marvel-esque pace. It's almost yes. like Jack Kirby and Stan Lee wrote a movie in some ways to me, as I'm thinking yeah. about it now. But like I said, it doesn't feel rushed. It feels very to the extent that uh, that any film feels natural. This feels quite natural to me. Oh, folks, this movie is an hour and nine minutes long, and I mean that's 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 just slightly longer than a television episode today. Yeah, yeah. But but yet this film does more than a lot out of two and a half hour movies. I think that that's absolutely right. And and I think you're right too about the pentagram effect on it on her hand. It almost looks like it's somebody projecting it from a flashlight. Yes. You know? um, it's not, it's 1941. I think that, right. so for people who are listening to us, I think when you watch an old film like this, you have to kind of credit the time and, and make some allowances and kind of try and set yourself in the past as a 1941 viewer. Don't view it as somebody who's watching a modern film and is expecting modern effects. You know, like, when you and I have watched King Kong 1938 is that right 33 33 sorry even earlier I think that that's one of the best films ever made I agree and but you have to kind of 
set yourself in 1933 to watch it. If you yeah. try and if you, if you try and be like compare it to Peter Jackson's King Kong and those effects, right? That that the 1933 Kong isn't going to survive that comparison, right? Yeah. You, you have to make some allowances, and I think if you are willing to make those allowances and just kind of say, okay, I'm just going to pretend I have never seen another movie in my life, right? Right. And I'm going to watch this movie as if I've never seen another movie in my life. I think that you'll find these classics, classic for lack of a better word. Well, I mean, the good ones. Yeah, and, yeah. And, um, the bad and ones I think don't that, survive that, let me just set myself in 1941 or 1933 or whatever the era, right? There, Look, uh, I agree with what you're saying, but I think that when you do that, and if you do it properly, you will be able to see what effects from that period throw you out of a film and what effects don't. There are no effects in this film, in my opinion, including this one. The, the, uh, the pentagram, the projected pentagram, I decided tonight was my least favorite effect in the film. I think that's fair. However, even that, nothing, no effect in this film throws me out. Well, and and, the, and one of the reasons why that effect, that that very simple effect, doesn't throw you out is because of Bella Lugosi's reaction. Yeah, it's all about the acting. Exactly. And so Bella Bella Lugosi's Bella sees that pentagram. He's horrified because he is another Larry Calvin. He's he another not, nice guy. Yeah, doesn't want to hurt anybody. And he immediately says to her, "You need to go. Go now." And she senses something terrible in this moment because and this is something that, that the actress who plays Jenny um, surprisingly gets right and, and does well you know giving her advanced age um <laughs> I'm sorry. I'm being really hard on Jenny because she's so old. But she's like, what's wrong? And he's like, you need to go. And she's like, oh my God, okay. And she leaves, right? And she runs. And then we cut to pleasantries between Larry and, and Gwen. And they're having a wonderful banter. And she's they're getting to know each other. And that's something that I think really works well. It's very natural. She is very attracted to Larry. and But, but she's also, as we discover in the scene you're about to describe, she's already engaged and she's kind of intending to stay in that. Yeah. So so Gwen is kind of, she's having fun and she's kind of dipping her toes in the waters yeah. because she's she's she likes this guy. She's having fun with this guy. She's probably telling herself, well, you know, really, this isn't going to go anywhere because it can't. Yeah. But by God, I'm enjoying myself. Probably need to let this guy know that he needs well, to be realistic. Absolutely. And she's, she's, one of the things I like about the two of them is that they're very honest with one another and she's like, well, you know, I have to tell you, I'm engaged. And and Larry senses that that that's not necessarily fate. That's not necessarily the future. He's like, well, you're here with me, you know, so yeah. maybe maybe your engagement isn't all that you think it is. And she, and that, and, that, and this is something that is obviously going through her mind too. She, she is a small town girl, but Larry, the Talbots certainly seem to represent a wider world. And uh, it's interesting too, because we'll get to this later. There are really no bad guys. Totally agree. And, and that adds to the tragedy element of film. Maybe um, Jenny's mom as we'll, who we'll meet later. Maybe, maybe Jenny's mom who must be like 120. So anyway, Larry and Gwen are having a nice night and then they hear screams in the woods. Now the woods are an effect that I think on my first viewing I didn't quite appreciate as much as I did on the second and third viewings. Uh, the woods are obviously very studio, I think. Yes, but, oh, totally. But, but what they, so, so you notice the studio-ness of them, the unreality of them, but what they make up for what they what they what they they kind of cancel out that studio value by being so atmospheric. Yes, this is not a 
real woods. This is the woods of your nightmares. I think. Yes. Yeah, I like that. And and it's a very atmospheric. So the woods are the trees have no leaves on them. They're all trunks, and and on the ground is like this thick mist that's hanging over everything, like the foreboding and the foreshadowing of, of the film itself. You know, but right. I, I I think that it's a very uh, it's a very atmospheric uh, kind of set. Anything you yes. add to that? No, I I I would agree with that. I would also add, and I noticed at this time that a lot of the scenes that we're about to describe, you know, George Wagner deserves some credit as a director because actually I think close-ups in this movie are used very judiciously. Like a lot of the shots, we get that wide view of the force that you're talking about. And a lot of the action, we get to see it from a distance, maybe obscured. We're going to get to that in a moment. But look, composition of these scenes are great. Well, you know, really great. It's interesting. so, So after we get the scream, Larry tells Gwen, hey, stay here and he takes his silver cane that's the other thing I don't know if we mentioned earlier I'll check it out in the edit when I'm less drunk but he takes his cane and the, the wolf head on the end of his cane is made of pure silver and as everybody knows who's listening to this podcast who has grown up in earth and on earth in this era and any era almost silver is the is the kryptonite of the werewolf right? right anyway so he runs off and we get this kind of long shot of a wolf Bela's wolf is, is, is a wolf yes it is not humanoid in any way in shape or form and i'll come back to this later because there's a difference between larry's wolf uh, but which is, inter- which is interesting isn't it it is it is and so so i get the sense maybe we can discuss it now uh but, but I, we'll, we'll discuss it later larry sees this wolf very viciously attacking somebody we don't see it up close a modern film would have really gored us with this they would have it would have been blood everywhere there would have been viscera you know the wolf would have been juggling intestines or i don't know what it would have been it would have been really graphic wouldn't it yes this is just the dog grabbing a hold of something, the wolf, and shaking, which I found really affecting. It seemed very well, real to me for some reason. Behind a tree though. Yeah. And, and you know. You don't see and, much and, of the attack. And, and this is where Wagner deserves a lot of credit. Now, for the modern viewer, you know, the modern viewer you know, we're used to seeing all the stuff you just described. Yeah. This film doesn't give us that. And so, yeah, that might actually make the modern viewer, might disappoint the modern viewer. But, this was well done. They knew what they could do and they knew what they couldn't do and they knew that okay uh it's very similar to what steven spielberg did in jaws okay the shark doesn't work so let's just use the camera to give us the shark's perspective i don't think i need to explain more than that everyone's seen jaws i think wagner did a great job a great job in using trees and and perspective to kind of hide the fact that they didn't fully have the ability to make this effect look outstanding well and and because they did that it does look good i know i think that i think that even modern viewers will, will view that scene and be properly terrified or or you know feel the proper the, the appropriate thrill thrill again thrill thrill exactly it's a, it's a thrilling scene anybody who has watched their dog pick up a chew toy and shake it like it's shaking something to death right right will understand what that wolf in that scene is doing to poor 90 year old jenny probably breaking her hip she's she's bound for a nursing home she's done for. 
<laughs> Poor ancient Jenny. Um, but but anybody who's seen their dog do that, will under anybody who's watched a nature documentary will understand what's happening to Jenny, right? Yeah. Larry, and we don't get the conflict between Larry and the wolf very closely. It's 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 almost in black and white. It's almost noirish, right? Um, right. he runs up and the wolf attacks him. We can tell he's bit and he's fighting with a with the wolf. It's 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 close, but it's not it's close enough that we can kind of tell what's going on, but not so close that we're we're annoyed by any effects, right? It's quite an effective well, scene. And there's more there's but, shadow too. There's shadow. There's shadow. But one of the things that I think sells the scene, and, and I'll let you take over after this, Lon Chaney Jr.'s face in this scene where he is first attacked by the wolf conveys such terror and worry and, and fright that yes. it sells the effect, right? I agree, yes. Because he's his face is the only thing that's really well lit in this scene. Yes. And I was watching it tonight and I was thinking, he is terrified. Yeah. And anybody who's been bit by an animal or anybody who's who's felt that moment of, oh my God, I don't know if, how this is going to shake out, will recognize that face. And yeah. I, I just thought, I thought Lon Chaney's acting in this moment where he's obviously probably on set shaking a stuffed animal, right? Um, probably. I mean, I'm thinking of the, the scene that you're specifically talking about. And and when I watched it tonight, um, I was very aware of the fact that, you know, if they had lit that scene differently, it might look dumb today. Oh, yeah. But it, do but it doesn't. Um, it is really well lit. And then and then he um, he takes the cane and strikes the wolf again, which we see through a tree. Yep. We, don't so see we, don't, cane, we don't We don't see the cane hit the wolf. Go on. Sorry, go on. We just see the cane. We see his motion. It's, it's all about, it's all, it's all about the movement of Larry. Yep. It's not, you know, like, and I, like, even today, even today, I feel like that the, the use of the tree to disguise the effect is not noticeable. Like, no, it's not, you see what I'm saying? Like, it's not like, oh, you put the tree there because you couldn't do the effect. It, it works. No, because, and I think that Wagner probably understood this. I could show him hitting some prop. Yeah. Nothing, nothing they could do in 1941, maybe nothing they could do in 2021 yeah. would be as effective as, I think his cane was hitting some something on the ground because right. uh, off, off, out of camera. But right. because the violence of him swinging that giant obnoxious cane down is right. very visceral. It's very real. Um, and it works better than showing us him hitting the, the wolf. We know what he's doing, right? He right. throws the wolf off. He picks up his cane and he swings it for all he's worth. He, it, it's, it, this is a life or death struggle. Lon Chaney sells that. And it's just him, a tree and his, his acting, right? Yeah. And, and I think you've nailed it that, that it works because we, we, we get to use the best special effect, which is our imagination. Yes. And I mean, I'm, I, I found myself, this is the fourth time I've watched this movie. I said, Oh my yeah. God, this is horrifying. This is so here. This is a fraught scene. Right. And, uh, and he, the last swing that he swings, this is his, you can see it almost his adrenaline petering out. Yeah. Ah, uh, yes. I noticed that this time. Yeah. And, and then he kind of stumbles off and falls over. He is, he is almost mortally wounded in this scene. Luckily for Lon Chaney, his wound wasn't mortal and it was a supernatural wound. Right. Right. But he's, he's, he's in that moment. He is quite, he's quite hurt. Yeah. And, uh, Gwen comes running up and she, I think she finds him. And then the old gypsy woman who's also crouching about in a lot of the scenes, she, this old gypsy woman is observing a lot of this. She, she watches Bela all the time in all the scenes. And she's, she seems to be hunting around for Bela. Bela's her son. That's yeah. That's what I think we're doing too. No, I think she even says, because uh, he comes up. She, no. says it, she says it in his coffin. We don't know yeah. it until later, but we, we get the sense that, that this old gypsy woman knows a lot more than she says. Right. Yeah. But, but so she, she, she's a, she, she happens to be in this atmospheric woods and she finds Gwen and, and Larry and she says, what well, happened? 
I just had a thought that actually you just said that she knows more than she says. But actually, that's something about that's kind of a subtext of the film. The gypsies, including Maliva, are are, are more tolerated than respected. Yeah. That Maliva actually has something to say, but really no one wants to listen to her at all. Yeah. Uh, eventually, Larry will. Yeah. But but he's got to work his way up to that based on his experience. Well, and it's interesting too because Larry. One of the things I like about Larry is that he, he's not a judgmental guy. He's not judgmental like the community is about the gypsy. I don't think. No, he's not. But you know, beginning now yeah. where we are in the film, he immediately shifts to almost a constant anxiety. Well, yes, yes. We'll get to that in a moment. But what's what's the old gypsy woman's name? Maliva. Maliva. She says, "What happened to him?" And uh, Gwen says, um, "What the fuck do you think?" No, she doesn't. <laughs> she, she says, he was attacked by a wolf. I think he's been injured. And she says, "Oh, we've got." And Maliva, she doesn't get a lot of lines. And and I think I think the first time I watched this, I thought she was maybe guilty of overacting. But subsequent viewings has made me think she's as good as everybody else in the film. Oh, I I love her in this movie. Yeah. I think she's she is she is sort of an observer to all the tragedy, right? But she's right. like, we, we've got to get him home. And and so she helps she helps take Larry to his home. Before we get there, uh, we get this really nice scene of uh, Talbot Senior and is it the constable? Uh, yes, Colonel uh, Paul Montford, who, um, who who grew up with Larry. With Larry, yeah, they used to pick apples or something. One of the things that's really nice about this scene, and it happens so fast, you almost miss it. Talbot Senior is so happy that Larry's home. Yes, and he's talking about how great Larry is, and he's talking about how just just how proud he is of his son, yeah. right? And uh, and he's like, oh, you should have seen what he did with the telescope; it was brilliant. Yeah. Then there's this knock on the door, and in comes Maliva and Gwen and the injured Larry. And what happened? What happened? Oh my God! Everybody's really worried, and Gwen doesn't know that Jenny's dead, right? At this point, right. and uh, he's attacked. Larry was attacked by a wolf. That gypsy woman helped me bring him in, and they look over, and the gypsy woman is like vanished. With you know, she's out. <laughs> she doesn't want to answer any questions. I don't think because, like you said, nobody will believe her. Right. Um. But the the constable, the law, the law noticed her, and she said, "Well, she's." He noticed her that she was there in the doorway. Oh yeah, the old woman in the doorway. Yeah. yeah. And then I think almost at the exact same moment, Tibbets runs in. Oh, constable Jenny. Everybody knows Jenny for some reason. Well, well um, uh, you know, I noticed this time. I'll stop you because actually, before the moment before that happens, to Larry's credit, yeah. Larry says, "We got to find Jenny." That's right. That's right. And That's right. and you know that show. You know, Larry is a compassionate guy because actually he had every reason to be like, you know, what the fuck she doing here with us? You know, yeah. she's she's messing up my my plan to to seduce uh, Gwen. But he went to her aid, and then and then when he was you know hurt and and wounded, when he finally came to his senses, the first thing he said was, "Look, she's in danger. You know, I would, you know, we got to make sure Jenny's okay." I would argue even 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 more in Larry's favor is he had no idea who screamed. Yeah, okay, he, yeah. He tells Jenny. I'm sorry. He tells Jen. He tells Gwen, "Stay here. I gotta go. I gotta go look. I gotta go check this out." He runs in to help somebody without any knowledge of who it is. It doesn't sound like Jenny. You know, I don't think. Right. I, you know, uh, Gwen says to Larry, "What's that stock scream?" I don't know. Um, <laughs> it wasn't a Wilhelm scream. <laughs> 
stay here, Gwen. I'll go find out. And uh, that doesn't sound, that's a terrible Lon Chaney, by the way. But he runs into danger to help somebody who he doesn't know. Yeah. I mean, I think he saw that it was Jenny who was attacked, right? Well, in the end, he does. And so in that scene, he's like, you know, we got to go help Jenny. Yeah. And then that's when um, Twiddle. Twiddle comes in and, oh, it's Jenny, uh, the ancient single woman. She's, what, what happened to her? Did she finally die of old age? Twiddle? No. Her throat was, does he say her throat was ripped out? Yes, I believe so. The constable and Twiddle run off and they get Larry up to help. And then we get to the scene where the constable is investigating with the medical examiner of the age what happened to Jenny. Yeah. And uh, and this is... I Write that down, Twiddle. <laughs> that down, Twiddle. I don't like the law enforcement procedures in this town at all. Uh, the constable doesn't seem to pay attention to anything. He basically says to, to his who is assistant Twiddle, write down whatever the, the doctor says, you know. Right, uh, yeah. And and then Twiddle, who doesn't, I mean, this town doesn't see murders very often or, or deaths, violent deaths, right? Yeah. And, uh, and he's like, why aren't you writing that down, Twiddle? But well, sir, I, it's, I'm, I'm, I'm sorry, this is very unnerving. He doesn't say that exactly, but, but well, get down to it, man. Write that down. And uh, the constable doesn't need to be there. He doesn't examine the scene. He just tells Twiddle to write down what the medical examiner says. And right. then kind of walking around, because Twiddle notices what the constable doesn't notice. This is true. The Twiddle says, uh, sir, I'm sorry, but look, wolf tracks. And then they follow yeah. the wolf tracks of Bela, right? And and he is uh, fully clothed, but barefoot, yep. but dead. Yes, yes. Bludgeon! <laughs> that's bludgeon, that's right. And uh, that is an interesting combination because the wolf in the scene, I don't think was wearing a shirt. That's a very good point. Um, wasn't wearing pantaloons of the gypsy? Right. Anyway, uh, small quibbles, I suppose. Yeah, that'd be a big problem today, but for, for back then, it's like, oh, yeah, yeah, all right. Yeah, for forty-one, they probably couldn't even say, he's not wearing any clothes, you know? Right. Uh, but uh, anyway, they, they find him, and he, he's not killed by a wolf. He's, and they find the cane. They find the silver cane, the silver-headed cane. Yeah. And that sets the constable thinking, which I don't think he does often. Uh, Ralph Bellamy, um, I've seen him in other things. He he kind of often plays somebody who is not not the most astute. Yeah. Yeah. Well, he's another one of those guys. I mean, not everybody can be Talbot Senior, polymath, learned. Constable is the Prince Charles of this of yeah. this community. It, it's very interesting because I'm not sure when it occurs. It might be the next scene. It might be a little bit later, and we might not get to it. So I'll say it now. So John Talbot even says that 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 Colonel Montford, you know, Ralph Bellamy's character, the consul, is a very black and white, right and wrong kind of guy. And the implication is is that Sir John Talbot does not agree with that. Yeah. That uh, Sir John has a much more kind of nuanced view of human psychology and that uh, the constable is kind of just, uh, you know, you broke the law, you got to go to jail kind of attitude. Well, I, you know, it's interesting that you say that because I was kind of struggling with that because I felt that way the first time I saw it. But on this watching, on this viewing, so the constable comes back after the, after kind of the, uh, a routine and analysis of the of the scene right all right clearly jenny has died of the wolf ripping out her throat they have the wolf tracks right. bela has been bludgeoned to death right. we have the account of larry who says i fought a wolf who's attacking jenny and right. i killed it right john talbot senior has a has a hypothesis of what happened which is not unreasonable at all it's, it's not it's not and he, we get john's uh, sorry sorry let me let me back up a little bit the constable comes and has some questions of larry i don't think that he's i don't think he's as black and white as uh 
John thinks John Talbot thinks he is. I think he's confronted with a series of weird facts that he wants, and he wants the information. He wants to figure out what happened. I don't think that he thinks, at least not at first. And I only got like uh, you know uh, maybe two thirds of the way through the film today on on this on this viewing. Earth two, Max and Jason saw it. <laughs> A couple times, but Earth, whatever we're in, uh, Earth One, Earth One, uh, Max and Jason, uh, this Max only got through like two thirds of the film. So, but I, I got the sense that this is just a guy trying to kind of come up with an understanding of what happened because I don't think he thinks Larry hurt Jenny. And I don't think that he killed, I don't, he does think that Larry killed Bela, yes, but he doesn't know why because Larry, because Larry clearly says, I killed a wolf, nobody's going to convince me I didn't kill a wolf, right? Now, this, this prompts John Talbot's hypothesis of the events it was all confusion it was all confusion this this is the most atmospheric and weird looking woods in cinema history <laughs> at this point right it's dark it's misty and uh the girl screamed larry ran to her aid bela ran to her aid and in the struggle with the wolf bela is killed right and uh i don't think the constable is resistant to this idea but he wants to support it or reject it with facts i i i got that sense too okay and i think yeah uh, because in fact if i'm not mistaken larry and sir John are all about him continuing his line of questioning. It's it's actually the 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 doctor. Yeah. yeah I don't think he's a psychiatrist, but the doctor who's like back off. You yeah. know, you can do this later. Yeah. And and I, and I think the reason why everybody is like back off is because clearly Larry didn't kill Jenny. Right. Right. It all does look like an accident. The yeah. Bela the Bela killing. But you have to pursue these things, I guess, if you're a law enforcement officer. But he's not a bad guy. The the constable doesn't hate Larry. He doesn't. He's not no. out to get Larry. You know. They were friends. Yeah. yeah, and uh, and I, I I only bring this up because I think it's kind of a nice point that really kind of drives home the tragedy of the Wolfman. Yeah. Um, so, and this kind of this begins what I thought was interesting. So, if you've listened to us for a little while, audience, you've listened to us talk about the thing. You've listened to us talk about Invasion of the Body Snatchers. Those were the last two podcasts, and one of the themes in those films is paranoia of an inability to trust your neighbors. Now, in the thing, the paranoia is about a small group. Who can I trust in this group? You know, uh, who's the thing? Who's out to get me? Who can I trust? The paranoia in in invasion is also outward directed, where it is is everybody out to get me? Right? Yeah. Very broad. Very broad. Is, is there anyone left? Is there anyone left? Yeah. But it's very much everybody you look at in the invasion of the body snatchers is are they out to get? Me? Are they yeah. my enemy? In this one, the paranoia is very inward. What did I do? Yes. And it begins here because Larry starts questioning his sanity shortly after this encounter, right? And and look, from here on out, Lon Chaney Jr., this is all very well done. Like, he he is, um, he almost never gets a moment's rest after. And, yeah. and, and Lon Chaney Jr. plays that very well. Like, like he is always, this is on his mind constantly. Yeah. And and we, I think we feel that in oh, how he plays it. I agree. I agree. Now, so after this, after this, Lon, uh, sorry, Larry's father and his doctor do try and shield him a bit from the constable, but they're also trying to calm Larry down, right? Yeah. Take it away. Sorry. No, I mean, uh, now, you know, there is kind of the element of Larry is the son of nobility. Yeah. And, and he is going to have people try to go to bat for him no matter what. Yeah. yeah. And, and they are trying to show the. However, this film does give the impression that Sir John's not only doing that because he's trying to defend his son as the, you know, the successor of the title. Yeah. He really does believe, as we would if we hadn't seen um, what we saw. Yeah. And, and 
and, and what we'll continue to see, that Larry couldn't do, you know, he would not kill anybody. No. That's not, that's not something that he would do. Well, and one of the things that I think really comes home, uh, and it really kind of underscores how nice a guy Larry is, and, and this will highlight the tragedy, is he does sort of seem to accept the hypothesis that his father has laid out, and he feels terrible. So he actually goes to the funeral home where Bela is being laid to rest. Yeah, the, uh, um, uh, looks like a mausoleum. Okay, now look, this is another good set. It this is. is an, this is not. This is more great production design. Kind of a mausoleum where they put his coffin, you know, kind of on a sand, Bela's coffin. And again, composition. You know, you've got kind of the, the gate in the background and there's this, I, I think, actually the, the church that Larry goes to later, I don't know if it's Anglican or Catholic, probably doesn't matter, but in the mausoleum, there's this gate that the priest and, and Maliva come through. Larry's hiding behind a pillar. And this is all done mostly from a distance. There are some close-ups of the priest and, and Maliva uh, having a conversation. But look, the blocking, the production design, the, the composition, this is all really, really well done and very underrated, I think. We see the Maliva argue with the priest a little bit because the priest wants to have kind of a traditional Christian funeral, right? Uh, but Maliva's actually kind of relieved by all of this. You know, she's like, no, my son's dead. He's in a much better place. She doesn't say my son, but she's like, you know, Bela's in a much better place now. He's much happier. Everything's fine. As your religion says, right? Yeah, yeah. And or so you or so you tell us yeah yeah. And uh, and the priest is like uh, trying to fight with her a little bit. Um, he's like, but there's no, that's no reason to have a pagan ceremony. I have heard you guys are going to be dancing in the street. And she's like, uh, but she puts her foot down and he, to the priest's credit, sort of acquiesces, right? Yeah. And he walks off and then Maliva comes to the coffin and she, there's another poem we're going to get a lot. Well, not a lot, but enough, you know. The way you walked was thorny through no fault of your own. Yeah. And Maliva kind of says a prayer. Is it a benediction? I don't know. You're You're the you're the no I mean I, I think that's right benediction and, uh, sounds right and and but it's it's this kind of prayer that acknowledges that after you were cursed you had a rough go and now you can rest you can rest but during all of this because of the blocking that you've talked about we see Larry's reaction yeah. to these things and it's not enough to fill him in on what's going on but it is enough to worry him yeah. and he leaves but on his way into paying his respect I mean I think he went to pay his respect to Bela to the funeral yeah. Yeah. but on his way we see a couple of the town gossips witness him and it's not Jenny's yeah. it's not Jenny's mom but it's I think some friends of hers I don't think I don't think it's her mom no I, I think the leader of them is her mom oh is it okay but yeah. they see they see they see Larry and she's like oh, there's Larry and the man you know oh okay uh, in that scene maybe it's not I, I'm thinking of the scene the, in the ringleader of of uh, of the now Larry doesn't get the pitchforks that that uh, would happen in other movies but there is a there is a contingent that thinks he's in the wrong and that think think uh, Gwen is in the wrong for Jenny's uh, and the leader of that group is Jenny's mom. It, and is, they it go, is. And they go to the Conliffe house. Yeah, but that's that's in a little bit, but but they do see Larry there and they find it suspicious that he's there at, at uh, Bela's yeah. uh, internment into the funeral home or storage there. But anyway, later on, you're right, they do a, they do accost Gwen. Uh, and they're like, why were you out with, this man isn't even your fiance, but you're out with him and then my poor Jenny gets killed. Yeah, and that's and that's in the uh, the Conliffe home, which is a, which is a great scene. I mean, it is. Uh, um, first, we have the interaction between Mr. Conliffe and, and Gwen, and you know he kind of comforts her, and she sits down. And then there's a shot of him going through this hallway because there's someone at the door, and it's yeah. the ladies of the town, and they they yell at him. Yeah. They don't yell at because Gwen's way over in the other room, and they uh, they're suspicious of Gwen. And you yeah, know, they, her... they, they, they lay into the father. I didn't get to that scene today, but they lay into the father like, "What kind of father are you? Why is this woman out with somebody who's not her fiance?" And again, 
then he stands up for her all the way. It, it, it's a really neat scene. And he's like, well, I trust Gwen implicitly, you know, and he's, he's he doesn't mollycoddle these women. He doesn't entertain them, right? Yeah. And uh, it's at that moment or thereabouts where Larry comes in because they're getting ready to say some stuff that can't be taken back, I think. And then and, and he's like, well, just tell me. Yeah. And, uh, and of course, they think he's a raving murderer, so they all leave. Yeah. But Mr. Conleaf doesn't think that necessarily. And, and he's a... And He's, he's he's the elder Conleaf is an almost modern father he he's very um he trusts as he says he trusts his daughter and because and and, and Larry is totally polite like you know is Gwen oh. here can I see her most certain yeah. she's you know down there well, and, certainly, uh, I certainly think that's something that must have endeared Mr. Conleaf uh, Larry to Mr. Conleaf is how Larry comes in against this angry woman these angry women who are casting aspersions and making really awful accusations of on uh, uh, about out, sorry, Gwen's character. Right. He comes in and defends her. He doesn't defend himself from any of their, com, com, you know, he's right. been Gwen in that moment. And I think that must have been, you know, quite a good moment for him in Mr. Conley's eyes. You know, oh, this is yeah. a good guy. Um, but yeah, like you said, Larry asks to uh, see her and he says, oh, she's in the parlor or whatever. And, uh, and, and can I see her? Yeah. You know, he's totally, totally polite. And then, and then he, and then he goes to see her and, and um, kind of begins to express his, um, his fears and, and, and she comforts him. And and then uh, Frank Andrews shows up, her fiance, fiance. Yeah. and um, and you know really I I I I like the way that they portrayed Frank Andrews. Oh, I because, do too. Yeah, I, I mean he comes, he's walking his dog. The dog does not like Larry. I mean that's kind of a nice horror movie moment. You know, better take the dog that out. Is, yeah. yeah, but um, Frank is uh, I don't know. He's a pretty secure guy because you know he's not he's not real jealous. He he, he shakes hands with Larry immediately. Does not he does not. But uh, and and Gwen calls him out on it. Oh, sorry. That, I'm sorry. That's right. And he points out that, well, I didn't mean that. There was just, I can't help but thinking there's something very tragic about that. Ah, uh, yes, yes, yes. And, and, uh, and, well, I mean, actually, I mean, I noticed it this time. I, I actually think that Earth 2 Max and Jason might have missed it. And apparently Earth uh, Earth 1 Max did as well. Earth 1 Max missed it completely. <laughs> um, but, but this time, I noticed it and I thought, because actually his line, there's something very tragic about that, man. I, I don't think, I think it got past me last time. It did. This, I, time, so. this time, I was like, that's kind of the programmatic line of the movie. I think so, yeah. And so, so for the rest of the movie, that's how I began to look at Larry. I mean, I mean it's kind of obvious you know, that he's a tragic character. Yeah. But from there on out, this time, I began kind of doing this this strategizing in my head. Okay, if I was Larry, what would I do? What what is the right thing to do to get out of it? And unlike most horror movies, there was nothing. Yeah. Well, yeah, I, that's absolutely right. Um, because he's not sure. Larry's not sure what's going on. He has a suspicion, right? Um, but he kind of he kind of knows, and, and in fact, I think you know we kind of skipped over his conversation with Gwen. I mean, he, he kind of confides to her that everyone thinks he's crazy, and he knows he killed a wolf. And then even she says, "Well, maybe you did," because she cares about. Look, everyone cares about him. Everyone means very, very well. Yeah. And, but, and 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 Larry would like to appreciate it, but he knows that something's wrong. And the reason why he knows that something's wrong, and we we didn't actually touch on this after the initial attack when they go so after they figure out that Gwen's been murdered by an animal Bela's been murdered by been killed rather it's not murder death by accident at the yeah. very most they go back and talk to Larry and they're like well let's see he's like well he fought a wolf I know I fought a wolf I was wounded and he opens up his shirt mm -hmm. and there is no wound it's just it's just his bare chest which and surprises him it surprises him it surprises John Talbot um, it probably would have surprised Gwen <laughs> because when Larry came home his shirt was his, his shirt it was red, and there 
was blood all over it. Now that's one of the re- uh, sorry, that's one of the reasons why the the constable is curious about all this. He right. thinks he was wounded. He thinks he fought a wolf. And uh, and again, the hypothesizing is fine. Well, when the wolf jumped at him. His his coat was ripped. He probably just thought he was wounded, right? right. And the blood from the on his on his outfit probably came from the woman, right? Right. Um. Anyway, and even the doctor says that you know maybe it wasn't deep or whatever. But but so Larry, but Larry knows that he was wounded. He was, right. and we know that he was wounded because of the way he fell over right. earlier in the night. But because it was a magical wound, he's healed by the right. next morning because the curse is already inching its way through his body, right? right. Um. Anyway. Well, God, what is the next scene actually? And then doesn't he? Isn't this his first transformation after that? Because he starts itching his legs. Yes. He yes. Starts itching, he goes back home and he's he's feeling paranoid. He's feeling uh, pent up, and he starts itching his leg, and he pulls his pants up as I'm doing now, viewers. You can't see I'm I'm, I'm pantomiming the scene, and the hair on his leg starts to grow. And, and he kind of makes a fist, and he does this frustrating like, "Oh, fuck!" Yeah. And like, and I really like that. It's kind of the same reaction you would have if maybe you know you were hoping you didn't have a tumor. Yeah. And then suddenly there it is, and you're like, "Oh, oh!" And now I got to deal with this. Yeah, yeah. There's an anxiety about it. Absolutely. That is kind of real. Like, oh, yeah. that, it does not seem dated to me. I think Lon Chaney's acting in this is really great. And uh, and this effect is actually still, I mean, it's 1941, but uh, the kind of time-lapse photo uh, of, of him becoming more and more wolf-man-ish, you know? Is not, uh, is not ineffective. It's not ineffective. And one of the things that I, I've been thinking about since the first time I saw this film, when Lon Chaney's Larry Talbot becomes the wolf, he's a very humanoid wolf man, right? Yeah, yeah. And I wonder if what we're supposed to imply from that, because Bela's wolf is a wolf. Yes. And I wonder if what we're to to, to uh, intuit is that Bela has been dealing with this curse for a long time. And now his wolf, his wolf form is almost completely, it is a wolf now. Yeah. You almost wonder if given more time, he just will never revert back. Exactly. Yeah. yeah. You, you have to wonder about that. But, but we're getting the nascent wolf form of Larry Talbot. And that's this humanoid wolf man. And he goes out into the atmospheric woods and he kills his first victim, right? Yeah. And uh, <laughs> yeah, the, uh, he happens the, uh, or Yorick. <laughs> The late night grave digger. Yeah. Um, which that probably is a, a point where we have to ask ourselves, do you really dig graves at midnight? Or what are you doing out here in this <laughs> woods, you know, in the middle of the night digging in the grave? And I have to say, the attacks seem very violent to me for, for 1941. I mean, he manhandles the victims in, a, in, a, in, I think, a very effective way. And you're like, oh, it's kind of chilling. And uh, of course, he kills the, the person. We don't, it's not gory, it's not graphic. And then the next scene, almost the next scene after killing the grave digger is Larry waking up in his room and looking down at his bare feet and seeing the trail of muddy tracks that lead to his windowsill and out the window, right? And and he does some rudimentary cleaning of the crime, you know, of the of the windowsill. And that's kind of modern too, like oh, absolutely. oh fuck, I don't want anyone to know that this happened. Not that not that he wants to get away from it yeah. or, or, or get away with it. He, he knows that it was not his choice and you almost get the sense I, I, I just need time to think. Yeah. Oh yeah, yeah. Yeah. Well, he doesn't even know at this point that he's killed anybody. I don't think. Right, right. But, 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 I mean, but he senses that something's wrong and he knows he needs to take some time to kind of like well, assess the, the situation. And the right. reason he knows something's wrong is because he, he follows his trail to the windowsill and when he looks out the window, the constable is out in his yard. Yeah. And so he kind of suspects that something's happened and that's when he goes through the frantic cleanup of yeah. his, of his, uh, of his house. What happens after that? The constable does, does the constable come in and chat him up? Yeah. And, uh, you know, and, and it's more 
more of the same, more of the, you know, the kind of interaction between the doctor, Sir John, the constable and Larry and, you know, the, the, um, the different opinions about what might have happened. Yeah. The doctor continues to take the lead that, yeah. you know, that, um, and he seems to suspect that Larry's just not doing well. And, you know, there's kind of this paranoia going on and maybe he needs to go someplace else. Yeah. And, uh, and Sir John is, is adamantly opposed to this. He's got to stand and face this down. He needs to face it. And he also adds, I noticed this time, there are five generations of Talbots that have lived in this village and never experienced anything like this. Yeah. He just needs, Sir John is convinced that Larry is hallucinating yeah. and is under, uh, uh, is in a delusional state. And if we can just prove to him that these wolf murders will occur, even if he's not, you know, that it's not possible that he's at the scene of the crime, then everything will just kind of go away. Both the doctor and John, Sir John recognize what they think. One of the things that hurts Larry in this and 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 will hurt John and, and everyone else who cares about Larry is that Sir John and the doctor are some of the most learned men in the area. And yeah. they have a lot of plausible psychology to deploy. Right. Yes. Larry suffered a massive trauma. He was almost killed. He killed somebody accidentally defending, trying to save this woman's life. So Larry has, is they're probably thinking something like post-traumatic, so they don't have this term, but they're deploying right. the psychology of post-traumatic stress, right? Yes. And Larry's father, Sir John, thinks that the only way out of this is through it, right? Right. The doctor disagrees, but they have this very erudite discussion about what should be done. Sadly for both of them, they are actually wrong and that the werewolf legends are actually true. And I can't remember what happens next. Le well, Le Larry, Larry, I know Larry tries to leave, leave town. Oh, well, well, Doesn't he go to Gwen and say, I, I need to leave town, I gotta go, I'm I'm a danger. Not yet, not yet. There is the um, um, gypsies have a, a festival, kind of a, a carnival. Okay. And Larry attends it and he has an interaction with Frank Andrews and Gwen. Frank is very generous. He's like, let's go say hello. And and Gwen doesn't really want to. And he's like, look, I want to show you that I'm not jealous. Yeah. And, 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 you know, he's very welcoming. He's like, you know, hey, Talbot, you know, why don't you hang out with us? And, yeah. and Larry doesn't want to, but he's, you know, yeah, come on, we'll have some fun. And they go and they do the, uh, the shooting gallery. Yeah. And the wood comes up and Larry can't shoot it. And so Frank shoots it down instead. That's when Larry finally has the conversation with Maliva. Because by this point, Larry is suspects that he's aware, right? Yeah, and he finally he's talks. Sure yeah. yeah, and he and he talks to Maliva uh, because he because he leaves them because he can't shoot the wolf and like he's really freaking out and and, and Maliva doesn't Sir John and see this too? Sir uh, Sir John and the the constable they both watch him. They both watch all of this. Okay. Like, oh, he's handy with a gun, you know, yeah. and. Um, um, yeah, he's a wolf. Yeah, and um, and that just convinces Sir John that you know he's just he's not doing well. Yeah. But then then Larry has the conversation with Maliva, and she says, um, um, "You killed the wolf." Like, oh, I know I did. Yeah. The wolf was Vela. Yeah, yeah. And uh, and she she explains everything to him, and it's very look. Maliva is a very compassionate person. Yep. And she you got to get the sense that she has spent her life caring for her son. I I, I mean I got to say I was kind of touched by the fact that she means what she says because Larry killed her son. Yes. But she knows that it wasn't his fault. Yeah. And she 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 pities him in a very genuine way. And she gives him a, a, a pentagram medallion. Yeah. Where this, she thinks it might have some effect on the transformation. Yeah, right? which, and I think, you know, maybe as a viewer, we can assume that at one point, maybe it helped Bela. Yeah. Because Bela obviously had dealt with this for a long time. Yeah. 
and but it didn't you know it didn't work all the all the you know it, it wouldn't work forever yeah and um so i mean that's what my imagination kind of told me and but she's also resigned that you know like this is gonna suck you know well but I, best of luck to you kind of thing i wonder if i'm gonna pose this to you i get the sense that she's kind of grateful for what's happened to Bela in some ways Well, because he gets to rest now yeah. yeah and i also get the sense that her main regret is that someone else did what she should have done maybe years ago you get the sense that bela has been living with this curse for a while yes and that he hates it he yes. hates it you get that bella lugosi does that really well yes but nobody among the gypsies will kill him you know and yeah you know, and, I, I hadn't thought of that that's that's good and, yeah i mean the 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 only tragedy in this moment for Maliva is that now somebody else has the curse. And she fe- and she and she feels sorry for them. She does feel bad. Maybe I'm reading too much into this. She might feel bad about this because this is something she should have done to Bela a long time ago, or somebody in her village should have done a long time ago. No, I I, I like that. I, yeah. I agree with that. And I think that's why she stays around when a lot of the other gypsies leave. Oh, good point. She does. Yeah. She doesn't leave with the other ones. Because they do leave because she passes the, the message that there's a werewolf in the camp and they all leave yeah. and it's at that point that Larry just kind of disappears and and, th- and that's important because uh, Gwen even tells him that she and Frank had a a, a quarrel yes um but but um and and they hang out for a while but Larry gives her the the, the charm the medallion but he's got to take off because yeah. you know and this is a different Larry now you know that the happy-go-lucky hey you know you know this blue-eyed girl I'm gonna flirt with her yeah. he can't channel that anymore he's he's in full anxiety mode and he's then, cracking he, he's worried about who he's going to hurt next and there's now no shortage of people who he doesn't want to hurt right and I know one of the scenes I thought was really powerful is when he says like he goes to Gwen and says I gotta leave right he he uh, he takes rocks and he and he hits her window yes that's a very cute scene he's, uh-huh. he's very he, he's very desperate and she comes down yeah. and he explains all of this and this is the first moment like you kind of get the like she, she really likes him she yeah. likes Frank she likes Frank too but when she sees that he is tormented, this instinct in her to rescue him is just let me pack some things. She's gonna go with him. Yeah, and he's like, no, I have to go alone. And and he explains, you know, I'm I'm doing this for you. I'm doing this for everybody else. And they're both so touching in this moment because neither one of them are really being selfish. I mean, it is true that when suddenly you know in the heat of the moment has made this decision to abandon Frank, but she she cares about him. Yeah, and she and she knows that he's that he's isolated and. He He's, he's really like suffering every minute of his day. Oh, yeah. And, and and she wants to soothe that. And in that moment, it's like, fuck everything else. Yeah. I'm going with you. Well, and, and and that's when you know that, that, that she really cares about him. And I think also in that moment, for me, when she did that, it was also the moment where I thought, this isn't morally a bad thing, because I think at some point she would have called off the in, the engagement to Frank. Oh, totally. I, I mean, yeah. even even without Larry, I think that that was doomed. And I think that that's why, the, that's why I think that that's why a lot of things happen. I, not not bad doomed. I just think at some point she and Frank, because they're both young, because I, I think I think you're absolutely right that these are 18, 19, 20 year old characters in reality. I yeah. think I think that at some point they would have been like, you know, when we agreed to this, we were young and we're not really meant for each other. You know what I mean? Right. Yeah. And uh, I think that would have happened. I, maybe I'm wrong about that. Maybe you disagree with that. No, I, I I hadn't thought of that until you just mentioned it. But in this new kind of uh, Earth One uh, Max and Jason uh, perspective that I presented earlier. No, I, I think I'm with you that we're meant to see these characters as almost like, again, if you were to film this movie,
movie today and you were to you would make these characters teenagers not 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 irresponsible teenagers no 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 but but um you know i mean they would be teenagers who had jobs and were just getting their start in life and this kind of thing middle class or in the case of of larry you know very upper class and i think that any viewer wouldn't even Frank, wouldn't even wouldn't question anything any of the dynamic at all i think if you wrote this today frank would be gwen's friend her best friend from child i think that they yeah. would, i think that you would because in because that's sort of how they present a lot of times in the yeah. film you know they're not they're not particularly romantic together right they um, flirt a lot like frank and frank and gwen oh, oh, oh okay yeah yeah yeah, yeah. I'm, um, what, I, what i'm thinking is frank and gwen would have been friends from childhood that's why okay. yeah 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 in a modern, yeah. In a modern treatment and uh and then she meets a guy who she has chemistry with. a smart script would make make frank happy for her but worried because larry's a tragic character larry and uh gwen are having this friction about her coming with him and that's when her father comes down and larry ends up leaving the he runs he runs off yeah yeah, yeah. and uh because he sees the pentagram on her he does and um he knows that he's got to get away as far as he can yeah. and so then he goes to his father yeah. and he tells his father what he thinks is going on and his father and another scene where we get really compassionate characters because his father isn't like i think uh, a lot of modern scripts in fact the remake of this is like uh with anthony hopkins and uh uh benicio del toro um anthony hopkins father is uh very mean to larry i think in this moment and uh, i could be wrong about that let us know audiences but but larry in this moment is like well he's always offering counter hypotheses to larry the elder yeah. albert he's like i think what you're having is a psychotic kind of break and uh i know exactly how we'll we'll stop it we'll run an experiment which is what a scientist like larry talbot uh, the john talbot sir john talbot is would do he's like yes. basically he knows there's going to be a hunt for the wolf tonight on the night on this night he says we'll chain you up larry and what's going to happen is you're going to see that you're not going to change into a wolf everything's going right. to be okay we're going to kill the wolf you're going to be larry and everything's going to be fine and larry agrees to this because he's chained up right right and but there's this really poignant moment where his father's about to leave and this kind of comes back to the tragedy of it and one of the things that i think makes this a really quality tragedy is that larry knows that there's a danger that he could get loose and he says to his dad hey why don't you take my cane with you? i'll feel better if you take my cane and this is this is such a powerful moment because what he's saying to his dad and his dad can't hear it in this moment is that you might have to kill me tonight. but he also gave gave the medallion when yeah so larry as a tragic hero absolutely took the steps to protect the people that he loved best. absolutely and i mean and that's all he can do because he, he can't tell the town hey i'm a werewolf a nobody's gonna believe him except for right. tibbets might believe him but because I, I think tibbets is a kind of moron but they have this they have this hunt for the wolf out going on right and right. Uh, but you're right it is that selfless moment where like he didn't have to tell anybody anything he'd have been like well as long as nobody has any silver i'll be okay but and it's just a really nice moment he's not bitter about what's going to happen he's not bitter he just says dad take my cane you know i'll feel yeah. better take it. and uh and i think lon cheney does such a great job in that scene being he's being the dutiful son you know mm -hmm. his dad goes out his dad thinks everything's okay somehow larry escapes does he kill any of the hunters i can't remember they shoot at him i know that i don't think he ends up killing anybody because he, <laughs> he gets stuck in the um bear trap in the bear trap yeah. and um oh wait a minute wait a minute he gets so that's the first time he's out right he gets stuck in the bear trap and maliva somehow oh yeah we skipped that totally yeah yeah well anyway so earlier he's out and he gets caught in a bear trap when he tries to kill he tries to kill gwen earlier i think right yeah and uh and maliva happens on him and she 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 uses some of the magic of her people to stop the curse for a bit right right and and that that stops it from happening but uh, towards the end of the movie this is a different scene um but he doesn't kill 
kill any of the hunters. I think you're right. He doesn't kill any of the hunters in the final scenes. He attacks Gwen, though. And Gwen comes looking for him, and she she runs into Maliva and is like, have you seen Larry? And he's like, and, and Maliva in a modern film would be like, what the fuck are you doing here? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Uh, because Maliva kind of knows that he would be looking for her. And, uh, you know, Sir John's out as well with the cane. And finally, the wolf man finds Gwen yeah. and, and attacks her. And, and Sir John comes to the rescue. And in kind of, I think, an iconic scene, yep, yep. Sir John uses the cane and strikes the wolf man in exactly the same fashion that Larry killed Bela. Well, it's almost a recreation of the same sh- the shot we saw earlier. The, the film has come full circle. I think kind of poetically, actually. Go ahead. Sorry. No, I, um, absolutely. And Sir John ends up killing the Wolfman. And Maliva shows up just in time to recite the the, the secondary poem. Yeah. While we watch. Wait, I got to stop. Yeah. This is kind of horrific. Yeah. Oh, it's it's it is the it is the horror of the movie. I think it's the most horrific moment of the film because um, it, 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 in a fine effect, the Wolfman turns back into Larry, and we have to watch Sir John watch it. Yeah. And come to the recognition that he just killed his son. And that's, you know, that's the, that is the compounding of tragedy in the film. Again, you have to credit uh, Claude Rains here. Because he recognizes it. Now, you see, here's the, and this is why this film is such effective horror. Larry wanted to preserve his father and his Gwen, and Gwen from pain. Yeah. But especially watching it this time, Sir John will have to go forward knowing that his line ended yeah. at his hand. Yes. And Gwen also realizes because Frank comes and embraces her, but she realizes what happened. Oh, yeah. She knows Larry's story. She knows that he died. She knows that he was the wolf man. She knows that she can't tell anybody. Yeah, yeah. It's it's a tragedy, not just because Larry dies, but but because the people that he would have wanted to preserve, their their um their health, their psyche, their all of that. It's not their that tragedy at the end is is every bit as powerful as you described. Yeah, and and you know, I mean, before we get to final verdict. I mean, I will say that I'll, I'll just kind of repeat my initial reaction to this movie. I actually think in high school, the reason I love this movie so much, and I I loved it. I adored this movie. The first time I watched this movie does character uh, development very, very well. Um, this movie is full of characters that we we like. We really like the people in this movie, and we, we don't want anything bad to happen to any of them. Exactly. Yeah. And yet this movie is just populated with people who are going to come to a bad end. <laughs> and it's very affecting in ways that the earlier Universal films look. And I know there there are people out there that say The Bride of Frankenstein is the best Universal film. I've seen The Bride of Frankenstein. I do think it's great. I, and the original Frankenstein as well. But when I was in high school, I, I liked those films. I watched those films a lot. But when I first saw this movie, it got to me. And, you know, and I've now seen it more than a handful of times, yeah. six, seven, eight, nine times. And this, this is a very affecting movie. And um, it actually, there were actually moments this time in watching the composition of some of the shots. Yeah. Like I'm kind of, I'm kind of mystified. I mean, George Wagner is an is an unknown in Hollywood history as a record. This is by far the thing he's most known for. But this film is so expertly done that it, it, if there was a, a and look, everybody, I didn't go to film school, but it, um, it, if there was a Max and Jason like uh, uh, you know horror film 101, you know. Watch this film, uh, prospective directors, uh, in terms of you know how to craft a good horror movie. I think this is a movie I would show. I think so. Too. I really do. I really do. I think so too. And, and one of the reasons why I think that it's so 
worth showing is not because of actually the the reason why I think the horror works so well is because the the vehicle for the horror is these nice people trying to trying to survive this terrible situation. I I uh, that right. Um, it's more yeah. effective. It's it's more effective because everybody's nice and everybody wants the best for each other in this film. Yes, I I totally agree with that. And we care about these characters, and the ending really really gets to us and it makes us want to watch it again. And then there's the other aspect that you know that we we hit quite a bit during the film is that Lon Chaney Jr. and Evelyn Anchors have really good chemistry. And actually, I I, I kind of want to take a minute to shout out to Evelyn Anchors yeah. as Gwen. Like she's she's a really attractive lead female role. I mean, uh, the way that she responds to Larry and his flirtation and the way that we kind of get into, you know, kind of how she tries to make sense of that. She's attracted to him. Maybe she shouldn't be doing this and this kind of thing. I, I really like all that stuff so much that um I, yeah, I like. I, I want to I kind of tack onto that if I can for a second. Um, What I like about her and you and I have now we've, we've covered a few older films. The only other character I can think who has as much agency as Gwen is uh the woman from Ombre. Yeah. You know? Oh, totally. Totally. That on this film, on this podcast, yet. Jason and I have discussed it for the podcast, but you guys haven't heard it yet. But um, she has a lot of agency. Uh, she's not somebody who is told what to do. She certainly seems to march to her own, the beat of her yes. own drummer a little bit more than a lot of women from this era of film, you know? Yes. And I think that I think that's something that I really find appealing. I had some other things to say, but I'm afraid that tequila has struck again. Oh, uh, luckily, luckily we're done. So okay. the verdict. For me, I think The Wolfman is a, is a horror film that, that's stands the test of time because it is such a poignant tragedy. It's got good effects for 1941, but it is a horror uh, film that is based on the kind of feelings we get when we see bad things happen to really good people. And that's the real horror of, of The Wolfman. Yes, it's got a supernatural uh, component to it, and uh, and it has all the trappings of a decent horror film, but the real thing that makes it work is the humanity of all the characters, I think. And I think that you guys should watch it. For that. I mean, we've given all the spoilers away, but I think you'll still enjoy it. Jason, anything to add to my brilliance? Uh, I Everything that you just said, I I would second. And, and I felt that way 30 years ago when I was in high, was that 30 years ago? When I was in high, when we were in high school, when I first watched it, I felt that it was a, a story about a, a, a good man who, who, who runs into this tragic problem. And I have to say, I felt then and I feel now, this is by far, by a mile, my favorite universal picture pictures monster film and my opinion has not altered one iota i'm sure later we will do frankenstein dracula and all the others but i i adore this movie and i adored it as a teenager i adore it now as a uh, uh, 47 year old man i love the cast i love characters and now I'm, I'm i'm even noticing more things you know the composition of the shots the oh the, the production design there's so many things about this movie that every time i watch it i love it more and now, you know, we watched it, uh, uh, Earth 2, Max and Jason watched it uh, several months ago at the end of at the end of the Halloween season, and we loved it then. And now I watch it now, and I love it more even now. And so I would suggest anybody who is interested in old film, even if you're not interested in old film, if you like horror films, if you like action films, if you like drama films, watch The Wolfman, directed by George Wagner, starring Lon Chaney Jr. I, think, I love this movie. I 
think that's absolutely right. And it actually, it's funny that you mentioned that. And I, I, I know we're kind of adding to the verdict here, but this did bump all the other ones out for me too. Before this, I think Frankenstein was my favorite. Um, but this one is now Wolfman, I think is my favorite universal horror film with the score. We haven't got into this, but that could have been written by Danny Elfman at the height of his powers. Yeah. Uh, it moves with the film very well. It's, it's not jarring in the way a lot of the, a lot of times in these films, and this is more afterthought than verdict, but uh, a lot of times in old films, uh, the score can seem like an afterthought. That's not the case here. Yeah. Yeah. It moves with the film very well. I was very conscious of it tonight as well. Yeah. So folks, I'm not sure that this is earth one max and Jason talking about this. I'm not sure what we're doing next. Maybe I'll add it in, or maybe it'll be a surprise. Do you know what we do? Do you know what we did after this? Does your memory work? Does it serve you here? For Jason, it's been gin tonight, I think. For me, it's been tequila. Sorry, guys. As usual, share us on all your social media platforms, on the Twitters and the Facebooks and the Instagrams or wherever the fuck it is you share things. Email me at Lord uh, and Jason uh, at uh, lordmovies39 at gmail.com. Once he gives me the password. To the, once, uh, I, once I do that, I, mean, I won't do that on the podcast. Um, all right, guys. Go see this movie. Let us know what you think. Bye-bye. Right. One moment, though. I've got to... I've got to go make my drink. Fuck the fucking fuckers. Impeachment is clearly stated as an Article One power. <laughs> Poor ancient Jenny. He doesn't even mention how old Jenny is. Uh, but, but God, I'm really on Jenny tonight uh, in a way that no one in the village is because she's so old. Um, um, but, but then there's an. <laughs> Sorry, I've, I've slaughtered Jason, and we're getting a lot of silent laughter from Jason here.